How's everybody doing? It is time to get back into Romans. Before we do, let's, uh, let's go to pr- uh, our Father in prayer. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, for allowing us to gather and to worship you. I pray that you would be near to us, that you would give us faith, that you would give me faith and power by your Holy Spirit to preach your word faithfully. Thank you for uh, Alex and Jessica getting married on Friday. I pray that you would bless their marriage, that you'd bless their home, that you'd be with them as they travel. Thank you for uh, the kids and their teachers back in Children's Church and in the nursery today. I pray that you would bless them this morning and that you'd bless their teachers. Thank you for the men among us who are training for ministry. Thank you for the babies that have been born, uh, for bringing the longs back to us today, and for uh, the babies that are uh, soon to be born, that you would protect them and that you would cause them to be healthy and strong. Help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans. On the roller coaster that is Romans, back to it today. We finished chapter one in three weeks, cooking with gas. Today, chapter two, um, verse by verse, all the way through. Let's just get started by reading. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? All right. Now, today's passage begins with an important word, and that word is therefore. And anytime we're studying the Bible and we see a word like therefore, it's important to ask a really simple question. It's kind of dopey, but it's really good to have in your heads. And some of you may already know it. The question is, what is the therefore? Therefore, right? And that's the question that we have to get started with today. So why is it there? There is a big giant statement. Therefore is a big giant statement. And so what comes next has to do with everything that came before, right? That's the point. Therefore, so what came before? What happened? What's the setup? What's the therefore, therefore? Well, Paul's been in the process of explaining why he has to go and preach the gospel to people who have never heard it before, right? He is explaining why he's just driven to go throughout the Mediterranean. I'm sorry, I have to move this. I can't. He's got to go preach the gospel where it's never been preached, right? Why? Why? Well, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, okay? Why does that matter? How does it work? Well, the first answer is God's wrath against sin, and that's what we spent last week talking about. We watched as Paul, writing 2,000 years ago, explained the world that we live in today in really, really simple terms. Are there things in this world worth being angry about? There are, right? There are. There are things in this world worth being angry about, things worth being upset about. Because there's injustice in the world, right? There's sin, there's wickedness, there's wrongdoing. All those things are real. So here's what happened and here's what keeps happening across cultures. This is the universal experience of man and it's just sort of outlined for us in Romans chapter one. God's made himself known through everything that's been made. Creation doesn't just whisper his name, it shouts it. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the oceans, the rivers, the mountains. Everyone sees that God is God. Everyone knows. Everybody feels it deep down, right? Get that, right? What is it that everyone does? Everyone then takes that knowledge of God and suppresses it, pushes it down, tucks it away, hides it, refuses to acknowledge God as God, refuses to honor him as God, refuses to give thanks to him as God. We're not grateful. We don't want to show him gratitude. We we don't want to acknowledge him because that means obeying him. So we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creation instead of the creator. We claim to be wise. We become fools. When we do that, we lose all sense of moral order. God gives us over to our sin, and it starts with dishonorable passions, starts with sexual sin, and it progresses and gets more and more debauched until we become completely debased. Now, Paul's just describing things in general. He's describing the barbarian culture of Europe that he wants to go preach the gospel to, okay? But it's easy for us to take a look at these principles and say, hey, I recognize that. That's just the world that we live in right? That's just the world that we live in. We can do that. We can take these principles from Romans 1 and apply it to the world we live in really, really easily, right? The gospel did, in fact, penetrate Europe, and Europe spent 1,500 years repenting and being reordered around God the Father, rejecting false gods and idols, repenting of sin. But here we are again in the Western world, casting off God, rejecting Him, exchanging the truth for a lie, worshiping and serving the creation, turning back to the old pagan gods and their practices, just under different names. We've just given them concept names now instead of personal names. So it's science and nature and the state instead of Dionysus or Molech. And then we're seeing God's judgment play out in front of our lives, right? Play out in the world, Impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves. That's the first thing he says. Sexual revolution, no-fault divorce, abortion, dishonorable passions, exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations, committing shameless acts. Gay pride, gay marriage, trans rights, pedophilia. And then the full fruit of our sin and rebellion. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's how Romans 1 ends. Now, what's the point of retreading all of that ground today? Well, the point is because Paul the pastor knows our hearts. Paul the evangelist knows these people are out there and they're under the wrath of God and God has made a way for them to be saved so he wants to go. He wants to go. But Paul the pastor knows our hearts and our hearts say, yeah, they really are bad, aren't they? Yeah, those things, those people really do need Jesus, don't they? And he wants to stop us dead in our tracks and say, wait, 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 wait. This isn't us and them, right? The minute that you start to do that and say they, what you actually say is that you don't need Jesus. You're drawing a line between you and them. You're saying, I'm sure glad I'm not one of them. 
something bad happens, some, a, flip, or a flip gets switched. Switch gets flipped, right? And we're saying we don't need Jesus. We're above the law. We're above God. We've placed ourselves in the seat of judgment. He says, let me stop you right there before you start. Before you do that, let me stop you right there. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You're going to stand in judgment on these other, you do the same things. We're all guilty here. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? In other words, you and I, we're just as bad as everybody that we judge. We're just as bad. Now, the world's a pretty bad place, right? We're not denying that. The world needs a judge, right? All we're denying is that you're him. You're not him. You're not the judge. You're not the judge. True or false, we live in a pretty judgmental world. True? It's pretty true, right? It's pretty true. It's a pretty judgy place we live in. There's a lot of judginess in America. Political, moral, philosophical, economic, social, judginess across the board. Been on social media lately, a lot of judginess. Things are wrong, things need to be made right. They're unjust, they need to be made just, we see that. And we want to put ourselves then in the judgment seat. Say, I will judge. Uh, are those things still wrong? They are. But the problem isn't that we see things that are wrong. The problem is putting ourselves in the judgment seat. It's our impatience. It's our will to step in and be the arbiter of all things. There once was a man named Karl Marx. He looked at the world and he judged it to be unfair. He judged God to be unjust. He said, what we need to do is rebuild a world without God, one that has real equity of opportunity and outcome. His followers took up the cause and they said, the first thing we need to do is reject the whole idea of God and then the next thing we need to do, we need to do is tear down the structures of power that are in place We'll start a sexual revolution. We'll upset the nuclear family. We'll replace the moral order of the world with a new order that, but wait a minute. We have to be careful, don't we? Because we're talking about them again. Yeah, but they're really bad. We're just trying to be discerning. Yeah, we have to make judgments. But we have to look at ourselves first, always. There's a lot of really bad people in the world. We're one of them. And if we're not careful, we fall into the same traps as everybody else. If you think that you can look at the world and solve the world's problems without solving your own problems, you're just a hypocrite. If you think you can look at the world and solve the world's problems without dealing with your own anger and your own lust and your own rebellion, and you can go out and answer everybody else's problems, you're the problem times two. It's just repeating the same fundamental error. Do we understand this? It is good and necessary to be discerning and to make judgments. But if you're going to be critical and make judgments about economic policy, you had better have your finances in order. 
If you're going to be critical of sexual politics, you'd better be sure that you're not addicted to porn. If you're going to be critical of the attack on marriage, you'd better love your husband and your, or your wife. If you're afraid they're grooming your kids, you'd better be disciplining your kids. These are real problems. But there are real problems in your life that you can take action on because they're the things that you're actually responsible for. And it's really easy to find the problems out there that allow us to distract ourselves from the problems in our own hearts and in our own homes and fixate on those things without dealing first with our own selves, without getting our own hearts and our own homes in order. We judge our bosses, we judge our pastors, but we don't bear the responsibilities that they bear. Would we do such a great job in their place? Do you do a good job of bearing the responsibilities that you do have to bear? You judge your wife, you judge your husband, you judge your kids. Are your judgments wrong? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes those kinds of judgments are necessary, aren't they? But we have to first deal with the judgmental sinfulness in all our own hearts. Remember, we, we're so twisted and messed up, we can't drive down the Lloyd Expressway without making ourselves the standard of how fast everybody should be going, right? Like, we can't drive down the Lloyd Expressway, we can't you know, leave here, get in our cars and get on the Lloyd Expressway without deciding that everybody on the road going faster than us is a maniac and everybody going slower is an inconsiderate jerk who's in the way. Like, that's just how messed up we are. We become the standards. We're always right. We make ourselves the perfect judges of everyone and everything. We judge and we judge and we judge and we judge and we judge. And we do it in our jobs. We're constantly grumbling about our bosses and employers. We know how we'd do things if we were in their shoes. We do it with our kids. And yeah, there's always the one perfect parent who, or not perfect, but the one parent who lets the kids run wild. But there's also the parent that is just overbearing, who cannot let kids be kids, who cannot distinguish between a mistake and a sin, who's overbearing and oppressive. We do it with our pastors and elders and leaders in the church. We know how we'd run things. We do it with sports. We know how we would have called the football game yesterday, right? We know what we would have done with the ball if we were a fit, athletic 20-year-old out there on the field instead of whatever it is we are, on the couch, right? We do it with our husbands and wives. We judge everyone and everything all the time. And if by some crazy chance we ourselves are caught doing something wrong, we've got excuses and reasons. We apply our standards to other people, but man, we got our excuses, don't we? Oh, well, you know, I was... Yeah, 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 I was angry, but I was tired. I was stressed. I didn't have my coffee. My daddy didn't love me. My mommy didn't love me. I had a difficult childhood. I've got excuses. I've got reasons. We're sneaky, too. We'll twist and rename our sins, right? When he does it, it's lying, but when I do it, it's exaggerating. When he does it, it's stealing. When I do it, it's borrowing. I was going to give it back. When the government does it, we're redistributing wealth. We blame shift, we become victims. Remember Adam in the garden? The woman you gave me, the woman you gave me is 
the woman, but it's also you, God. The culture made me this way. My daddy, my mommy, my church growing up, my teacher. It's everybody's fault but mine, said Homer Simpson, I think. (laughs) If we're not careful, we can create whole cultures of judgment around ourselves, right? Nobody likes living under anybody else's judgment. Anybody like to be judged? But have you ever been a part of a culture of constant criticism? Of constant judgment where there's no distinction between sins and mistakes? Anybody have a father or mother like that? Grew up in a home like that? Don't raise your hand. It's, impress- it's oppressive, right? It's hard to survive. It's hard to breathe. You feel like someone's looking over your shoulder all the time. You're always under the microscope. You're either perfect or you're worthless. There's no middle ground. Your job culture can be that way. A church culture can be that way. As opposed to a culture of love and honesty and forgiveness and generosity. What happens in, a, in an environment like that? It creates an environment where people hide. Right? Everybody's got to hide. Everybody's got to have their secrets. Everybody's got to find places to cover things up. Because you can't be honest and real with each other. You can't make a mistake. You're walking on glass. Have you ever been around a friend group that way where the way we interact with each other is we find a common enemy to just tear apart and that we think that's fun. We just, everything is something to tear down. Families can be that way. Friend groups can be that way. Who likes that actually? Who wants to be a part of that? Some of us are like that though or we can get like that really easily. Some of us have created and been a part of those kinds of cultures in our homes, with our friends, at our workplace, in our churches. Some of us just love to judge, love to spend our lives sitting in the judgment seat and making judgments about everything and everyone. Feeling superior, feeling self-righteous. As if the world needs, what, more of me? more of you, if everybody was just you. Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. We are not the solution. We are the problem. We are what's wrong with the world. Let's read it again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Does the world need a judge? Yes. Yes. The world needs a judge. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Why doesn't Jesus do something? Why does he allow evil in the world? Why does it seem like he's doing such a bad job? Isn't that what we're actually saying when we sit in judgment on other people? Aren't we actually not just sitting in judgment on other people, but sitting in judgment on God for not dealing with people the way that we think he should? Isn't that what we're actually doing? Aren't we saying, why doesn't he do something? Why do you look like such a bad judge? Why do you allow such evil in the world? Isn't that what we're actually saying? That is what we're actually saying. Here's the answer. Next verse, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He's patient. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's the thing. We do have a judge, and he is a perfect judge, and he is a perfectly just judge. He will not allow one wrong to go unpunished. Every idle word, every tear, every drop of innocent blood, it's all being counted up. Every last one. It will all be accounted for. We don't have to be the judge. Jesus is the judge, and he is a perfect judge and a righteous judge and an impartial judge, totally and completely just. We need to not mistake his patience for indifference. Does that make sense? It's not that he doesn't care about justice. It's that he cares about mercy. Justice is coming. There is no wrong that will go unpunished. And there is no need to worry about that. Instead, our job is to marvel that the world keeps spinning in the first place. That the sun keeps rising, that the waves keep crashing on the beach. That after thousands of years... After wars and genocides and the sum of all our crimes, the stars still shine, the birds still sing. Not because God is not just, but because God is patient. Not because Jesus is a bad judge, but because he is a merciful and patient and gracious God. The world's not fair. No, it's not. It deserves to burn. That's the truth. And yet here it is, still spinning on its axis, testifying to the fact that God is merciful and patient and kind, that he desires that everyone should come to repent, testifying that we have a Father in heaven who desires all his children come to him. And that's our job. That's the message. That's why Paul is so eager to get on and preach. That's the good news we have. We've made ourselves God's enemies. We've declared war on God. We deserve his wrath. And God has yet made a way for peace, and he's been holding the doors of mercy open for a long time. And instead, we're tempted to sit back and judge, and judge him for all that's wrong in the world. We're self-righteous, we're impatient. And we have this illusion that somehow if we were to call down God's judgment, that God's judgment would just skip right over us. We would be excluded we need to remind ourselves that God really is going to judge the world and that judgment will be rendered wholly and completely and impartially. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Don't count on a free pass. He doesn't show partiality. His judgment is perfectly fair and just. You don't get any bonus points for being born a Jew or a Greek, for growing up in church or not. It doesn't matter who your parents are. If God is going to judge, we have to accept that he's going to judge us. If he's going to bring justice, he's going to deal with our injustices. If he's going to bring righteousness, he's going to deal with our unrighteousness. Mine and yours. Not just those people out there. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why we need salvation. That's why he came. That's why it's essential that he lived the perfect life, the life we could never live. That's why it's essential that he bore the punishment of God's wrath on the cross, the wrath we could never bear. That's why it's essential that he rose from the dead, that his life triumphed over death, that he won, so that God in his kindness could be patient with us and still be just and send out preachers and offer grace to everyone who believes and trusts in him and submits their lives to him. What happened on the cross? It was God's judgment for our sin. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took the wrath of God on himself willingly. It's not a small thing. You will be judged. If you trust in Jesus, the judgment for your sins happened on the cross. That's the good news. If you don't, it's coming and it's real. So remember the kindness of God and judge yourself. We judge everyone else because we can't deal with our own failures and faults. Deal with your failures and faults before God. Take them to him. Be humble. Work on you. Extend to others not just the grace that you extend to yourself, but the grace that God extends to you in Christ. When you're in a judgmental mode, be sure to take the log out of your own eye before taking the speck out of your neighbor's. Take the log out first and then go help your neighbor. Remember how deserving of God's wrath you are. How merciful he's been to you. Remember how, think about how merciful your family's been to you, for goodness sake. Some of you need to ask the question, what would it be like to live with me? What would it be like to live with me, the judge, the righteous judge of all things, apparently? What would it actually be like to be married to me? to have me for a mom or a dad, or as an employee, or as a boss, or as a teacher, or as a student, or as a church member, or as a pastor. We need to be patient with others as God is patient with us. We need to stop trying to fix other people or the world without having looked to ourselves first. I'm not saying don't be helpful. I'm not saying don't be discerning. We wanna have a church that cultivates wisdom and discernment, that sees the world for what it is, that sees ourselves and each other for what we are, right? And I'm not saying don't warn people of God's judgment. We are about dealing with real people in real ways here. We're about loving each other as best as we can and loving each other enough to see each other's sins and to speak, to tell each other the truth and to tell the world the truth about itself. And that's gonna mean sin and failure and screw-ups It's going to mean falling into the sin of being judgmental. The goal is to remember who we are and to repent when that becomes us. To remember that Jesus is the judge and not us. Okay, I want to end with uh, 
uh, story, and I want you to just indulge me for a minute. Um, we once lived in a place that had a real chipmunk problem. Anna just said, ah, cute. She could not be more wrong. I mean, okay, she's right, but she's wrong because chipmunks are like little devil rats. It's like, you know, the, the, the devil, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You've got these furry, cute little things that like tear apart your gardens and burrow underneath the foundation of your house and compromise the foundation of your house and chew through the wires and get into your attic and just, they're a mess. Chipmunks are awful. We used to have, live in a place where we had a huge chipmunk problem, such a huge chipmunk problem that when I set traps for the chipmunks, like I killed 13 in one day in the same trap. Like I could just sit outside with an airsoft gun and headshot chipmunks. Chipmunks are terrible. They're pests. And it says, I would never treat chipmunks that way. I would just let them destroy my house. They're so cute. 13, so many pets. <laughs> Anna dreams of being a Disney princess with the... <laughs> okay, fine, Anna. Rats, mice, snakes, spiders. We got we got pet spiders, mosquitoes. No, dogs. <laughs> House flies. How about that? I was at honeymoon uh, yesterday in downtown Newburgh, and the flies have just been really bad down towards the river. It's just killing flies. Here's a question: Anybody resent me for walking around killing flies yesterday at honeymoon? No way. They're pests, right? Anybody here scandalized that I went around killing flies yesterday? Anybody scandalized besides Anna that I killed the chipmunks? They're pests, right? So here's a question. Did those flies deserve to die? Sure. Sure. They were annoying. They're pests. Being annoying was enough to judge a fly worthy of death. Okay? Everybody here killed flies? What gives you the right to do that? What gives you the right to make a judgment like that? To determine that a living creature of some sort is worthy of death for annoying you? I'm not disputing your right to do it. I'm not disputing my right to do it. I'm calling your attention to the fact that you've probably never even thought about it. Can I give an explanation? You know innately that you are a higher order of being than a housefly. And that that fly was made to serve you. And you know innately that you are made in God's image and that the created order is made by God to serve you. And when the fly annoys you, it's defying its purpose. It's defying. Did I say deflying? It's, it's, defi it's about to be deflied. <laughs> it's defying its purpose. When the Japanese beetle destroys your garden, it's defying its purpose. 
You're made in, in God's image. It's your prerogative to exercise judgment. It's your right to dispense death with wisdom, responsibly. Every time you kill a fly or a pest, you're confessing something that's true. If death belongs to a creature that bothers someone bearing God's image, what does someone who bears God's image deserve when they make war on their maker? When they make war on the infinitely pure and holy and perfect and righteous judge of the earth, the glorious and eternal God. A punishment that fits the crime. That's what. We are creatures. We are finite creatures. We deal out finite death to flies and chipmunks and spiders without hesitation. But God is God. He is eternal. He is immortal. And we have made war on him. And so what do we deserve? What do we deserve? If judgment ended with death, would God be just? If it stopped with death, would it be just? It would not be just. The same end goes to Adolf Hitler as Mother Teresa. Is that, is that justice? It is not justice. Be wary of those who would take the edge off of God's judgment, who would rob him of real justice. Part of how we escape the sin of judgmentalism is we understand God to be the just judge who deals with every sin, every drop of blood, everything. Hell is real. It's beyond our imagination. Trusting and reminding ourselves that we actually deserve justice scary. But it also then underlines how merciful God is. Because if that's what we deserve, and for thousands of years the world keeps spinning, look at how patient. Look at how kind. We're not flies. We're not his annoyances. We're his wayward children. If we despise his mercy and kindness, and we take our rebellion to our graves, he will deal with us we have the privilege and the freedom to come to him. So don't make that mistake. Come to Jesus. He's good, he's kind, and he's patient. Let's pray.